0: I'm gonna be uh, proceeding with the rest of the afternoon. We'll probably
1: be running like 10 minutes past what it says on the schedule, um,
0: just to be safe. Um, We, I would now like to call Ritka to introduce the next speakers.
1: Hi everyone, my name is Rutger Shapiro and I am the co-vice president of the Medical Ethics Society. I feel so privileged to introduce our next two guests who will both be participating in a panel discussion on genetic testing and counseling. For our first panel member, I'd like to welcome back up Neil Feldman, who you all, I'm assuming, <laughs> heard Yulan so beautifully introduced earlier. Um, he will be contributing his halakhic perspective to this conversation. Our second panelist is Genetic Counselor Estee Rose. Estee started out in science and health while studying biology at Stern College for Women, where she was a member of the original Medical Ethics Society Board, and where she graduated from in 2007. She then rose in genetic counseling from Mount Sinai ICANN School of Medicine. Estee began her impressive 14-year career at einstein Montefiore Medical Center where she specialized in reproductive and cancer genetics, and also helped found this program for Jewish Genetic Health, which focuses on providing affordable and accessible genetic testing and education to the Jewish community. As he currently works for Screen, a nonprofit telehealth organization, which in partnership with Emory University provides education and low-cost genetic screening to people all over the country. SCI is known to be passionate about STEM education for women and for promoting genetic testing and counseling for the Jewish community. On behalf of the Medical Ethics Society, we are so thrilled to have both of you here to discuss these interesting cases in the Jewish community.
2: Um, so today's talk is called uh, genetic testing, scientific and holistic perspective. Um, I'm SCM, the genetic counselor, you all know where to build it. Um, we decided for this talk that we would make it a little bit more interactive amongst each other um, as a genetic counselor in the from community for many years. Um, I've dealt with a lot of cases in dating and marriage and should we get married, should we go ahead with this relationship. Um, what's the right thing to do from a loving perspective? Um, so, I kind of put together some of these um, scenarios that have happened to me and that I've discussed with many other rabbis. Um, that's uh, pretty practical, I would say. Um, but before we get started, I just want to say that, um, you know, as I say to all the patients, ask your local Orthodox rabbi. Um, I think it's really important that when somebody's going through genetic or medical issue, they connect themselves with a Rug who is very well educated in this, um, and not to rely on me, because I am not a holistic um, authority at all, but it's very important for people to align themselves with somebody who, who knows what they're talking about and who really understands the nuances of the medical genetics. Um, so thank you for help for helping me. Um, So just a quick note about genetic counseling. Some people know what a genetic counselor is, some people don't, Um, but I wanted to give you a little bit of a background about what I do. Um, I am trained in medical genetics and also in counseling. So you might be a genetic counselor in many different areas of medicine. Um, Most commonly, you'll see genetic counselors in the realm of women's health and reproduction. Um, You'll also see genetic counselors in the cancer world and in the pediatric world. Um, What we do is when we think or we're concerned that there might be something genetic going on in somebody or your family member, we talk to them about why we think there's something genetic going on, what kind of testing they can do to determine whether or not there actually is something genetic. Um, And then once the results are in, we discuss them with the patient and we talk about what they need for them, what they need for other family members, and what kind of measures that they can take, um, sometimes proactively or preventatively, um, and sometimes we're not at that point anymore, but we talk to them about different options that they have. Um, now that they have this new knowledge about themselves and their family members. Um, I uh, so I'm a genetic counselor for JScreen. I hope that everybody here has heard of JScreen before. Um, we provide uh, two different tests at JScreen. We do a carrier testing Uh, panel where we screen for over 200 different conditions that are common in people with all different Jewish backgrounds. Um, This uh, testing panel that we have is appropriate for anybody who's starting their family or adding to their family. Uh, We're actually coming to Stern tomorrow to do a screening event where we'll be screening 152 Stern students, which is really exciting. Um, It's our biggest event of the year. Um, And we'll be coming to YU in March for another event. Um, our other test that we offer is our cancer gen test where we screen for over 60 different cancer predisposition genes like BRCA um, and many other uh, genes that could cause a genetic predisposition to cancer. Um, okay. um, our process is very simple. Everything is done through telehealth. So anybody in the country can come through gene screen for either of our two tests. All they need to do is go to our website and register for their spit kit. We'll send it to them in the mail, they spit into the tube, send it back to the lab, and then a genetic counselor, such as myself, will review the results with the patient um, and kind of talk through the next steps. Um, and we also have their personal healthcare provider involved in the process from the beginning to the end. So when there is um, you needs know, special attention, we're we'll also in touch with the, the person's personal health care providers to kind of deal with what the results will mean and next steps that they should take. So um, I feel very lucky that I get to work with G-Screen and I get to uh, serve our community. But I, I see a lot of things also. So let's talk about the first scenario. Um, okay, so Shayna and Josh have been dating for five months and things are starting to get serious. So they decided to get tested with g and they found out that they're a carrier for a recessive condition called Non-Classic 21 congenital adrenal hyperplasia, hard to say, uh, but I'm just gonna call it CH for short. So um, before we get into the whole of questions associated with this uh, scenario, I just wanna give you a little bit of a genetics background, so to provide some context for my questions for a bifelman. Um, so number one, um, you might recognize the of squares from biology, or maybe not, uh, but um, this condition and many of the other conditions that we're screening for at Street are recessive. Um, if somebody is a carrier for a recessive condition and they don't have the condition themselves, they'll never have the symptoms of it, but if their partner also happens to carry the exact same condition, every time they have a pregnancy together, there's a 1 in 4 chance or a 25% chance for their child to be affected with the condition. So in this case, they are a carrier couple for a CAH, uh, which means that each of their kids would have a 25% risk. Um, the second piece of information I want to give you is a little bit about the condition. Um, it's generally a pretty mild <coughs> condition, but it's also very, very common in people who are Ashkenazi. So one in three Ashkenazis is a carrier for non-classic CH. Um So basically a lot of people in this room are probably carriers for it. Um, so it's very, very common for us to see carrier couples for it. Um, a little bit about the condition, uh, basically people who are affected with it, they overproduce male sex hormone or testosterone. Um, most males who have the condition go their whole lives not even knowing that they have it. It usually doesn't affect them too much. Um, usually it might affect females more uh, where they could have um, ex- uh, extra facial hair uh, and also menstrual irregularities which can cause issues with fertility. Um, but generally speaking, it is totally manageable and totally treatable for females who need a little bit of help. Um, they're basically put on birth control and that helps them J screen is not the same as Dori Sharon. Some of you might have heard of Sharim before. Um, We operate very differently than them um, in that we're screening for many, many more conditions, uh, different types of conditions. So something like non-classic CH is not on their testing panel because of the uh, mild nature of it. Um, We also provide genetic counseling for every single one of our patients so everybody gets their results, they know exactly what their carrier is for, and they can share that information with their family members as well. Um, We also say that it's not only important for people get tested before getting engaged, we think it's important for people to get tested before any pregnancy. So even if they already have a child or two, if they're planning for another pregnancy, we're always encouraging them to update their testing um, because the testing panels change over time. Um, when we do have a carrier couple, um, they always speak with a genetic counselor, either myself or one of my colleagues, um, and we go through all the different options that they have. Um, it doesn't matter what the condition is, how mild or how severe it is, we always give them the exact same options as are listed here. Um, some people will decide not to continue the relationship. Some people might decide not to have children at all. Um, some might decide not to have biological children. They might adopt. Um, some might decide to use assisted reproductive technologies like IDS, or they I don't know if we discussed this earlier today yet. Oh, okay. Um, where uh, they create an embryo outside of the body, and they can do genetic testing on the embryo to see whether or not it's affected with the condition. Um, if they see that it is not affected with the condition, they will use those embryos, and hopefully, it will. Uh, lead to a healthy pregnancy that's not affected with the condition, Um, but if embryo is affected with the condition, they would discard it with the lab and it would never turn into a fetus. Um, in other cases, some people might decide to just take the chance, and they can decide maybe possibly to test the baby during the pregnancy to see whether or not it's affected. Um, if it's not affected, great, they don't have to worry about it again for that pregnancy. Um, but if it is affected, they would have the option to continue the pregnancy with that knowledge and you know, prepare for having a child who might be affected. Um, and in other cases, they might decide to, uh, to terminate the pregnancy. Um, and... Oh, and also, uh, some people might decide to use an egg or a sperm donor. um, And as I mentioned earlier, ask your local Orthodox rabbi about all those options because um, there are definitely uh, places in Halalba that will allow for some of these options. um, And there's also times where it's not accessible. So I hope that was a good context. And now I'll ask (coughs) some questions. So, for this particular case where it is a very mild condition, um, how would you counsel this couple to?
0: Okay, so these are issues that have many different dimensions to them And earlier today we talked about abortion, which of course is a tremendously high-stake and complex issue, but there we come from a multiplicity of sources and have to try to work through that. On this topic, we're kind of coming from the opposite direction, where the sources really don't tell us all that much, and there is a great degree of subjectivity or variability in some of the answers that you'll get. So therefore, I'm really not sure how valuable whatever I have to say is, but because for whatever reason, I'm standing here, so I'll try to give a little bit of a uh, perspective and probably will front load a little bit. So I'll we'll try to give a longer answer now, It'll probably be relevant to some of the other issues that come up. So first and foremost, we should emphasize the tremendous value of testing and that uh, while there is historically some debate about it in different perspectives, in our community we've seen it to be tremendously valuable and helpful. And uh, Moshe Feinstein already addressed this in Achuva, that the notion that one might think that you're better off not knowing and that Shomer uh, Psaim Hashem, that there is a certain protection to those who are proceeding innocently without knowing, it doesn't really apply here, that here when you have the ability to know and to work with that information, and this is something that we've been blessed with to greater and greater degrees, so then we should take advantage of that and learn as much as we can for all kinds of reasons because it could impact in numerous ways, as we'll hear and as we have heard, and forewarned is to a certain extent forewarned and that there is a tremendous amount of benefit that can come from that knowledge. Now, the question is, having first granted that, so then what about the next step in terms of what do you do with that information? So here I would apply, not to the previous point, but apply to the next point, that there is a fascinating discussion in the Talmud of Marmissachos Barachos on Fyud, which seems to go back to that time, but actually still has tremendous resonance in this generation as well, where the Talmud talks about an interaction between uh, King Chizkiyahu and the Prophet Yeshiyahu, and Yeshayahu was talking to Chizkiyahu about his decision not to have children. And Chizkiyahu said that he had Ruach kodesh that they wouldn't come out well. And Yeshayahu said to him that wasn't your place to decide. And Bahadei Khashheh, the Lamalucha, God's secrets are not your business and that you have an obligation of Peruvu and to proceed with that. So I would not apply that to the first step, they're saying God's secrets are not your business. To whatever extent we can find out information, we are better off served by that. But I would apply it in the second context to say that to a student, that we can totally control everything, that's where we still have a lot of humility to incorporate and with all of the technology and all of the blessings that we have, there's a lot of impact we can have, but it's also still limited. So therefore, in terms of some of the more radical decisions that one might take because of whatever odds they are informed that may be relevant to their future children, I would be very cautious about radical steps, and certainly talking about pregnancy termination as we discussed earlier, that's among the most radical of steps. And and deciding not to have children at all, as that's a tremendously radical step, and all of that I would be very cautious about taking those kind of steps, assuming that we have the ability to fully control what happens because of the knowledge that we have. So. To, uh, the steps that are more manageable, and many of them, as you discussed, some of those are more realistic and don't necessarily impose on one's decision to have children overall or on one's decision to get married overall. So those, are the, those decisions we should factor in very significantly. And here in this case, uh, what you described, as you described it as a very manageable situation, so I would imagine that that probably shouldn't really have any impact at all as far as one proceeding and there uh, should be a certain degree of humility that with all the knowledge that we have still we can't actually predict how things are going to turn out and that there's blessings in all kinds of different situations and uh, proceed with that knowledge and in terms of I'm going ahead with the question I haven't asked yet, but I guess because it's a little bit uh, easier to discuss it as one. So here's the question about proceeding with the dating, proceeding with the relationship. So there also, it's not a small thing to decide, okay, I'm not going to marry this person because of whatever statistical odds are present. And of course, the question two, Tay-Sachs, there's a very big range between the case that's described and Tay-Sachs, which is a horrific tragedy that brings with it tremendous misery. And that was really how genetic testing for relationships really started and so there, so if the only way of preventing that was to not start the relationship in the first place, so in that situation, that may have been indicated, but every step that you move farther away from that where the situation is less serious or the relationship is already in progress, so that's also something to weigh very heavily and to recognize that people aren't interchangeable, so just the assumption that okay if you're not going to have a perfect odds of this relationship, so then move on to the next one where you will have perfect gods so first of all you're not going to have perfect gods in any relationship but the assumption that you can interchange and go to the next person without any kind of a cost is a huge assumption that doesn't really follow and the last week we read this, yesterday, we read Parshat Sisro and the mitzvah of Kibar Avaim is very powerful and very sweeping, and yet there are limits, and the Ramah quotes the view of the Marik that if a parent says, I don't want you to marry this one, I want you to marry that one, that we're not obligated to listen, and that uh, under certain circumstances, at least, given all other things being equal, which is a big given, but that the child is told to continue with that relationship rather than listen to the parental instruction to marry someone else. And the marik gave three reasons why that was the case, but one of the reasons, particularly fascinating, and marik writes that the child should proceed without listening to the parent's instruction because one's not supposed to listen to a parental instruction to violate the Torah. So one could ask, but it's not violating the Torah. There's a mitzvah to get married, but the parent wasn't saying don't get married at all. The parent was saying don't marry this one, marry that one. So why is that violating the Torah? So what emerges from that tshuva is that a part of the mitzvah to get married is to marry the person who you want to marry and who you feel is compatible and who you feel is the right one. And just switching to someone else is not going to be the same fulfillment. So to recognize, it's not easy to get a shudach, it's not easy to have a relationship that works and is compatible and that is a full fulfillment. So it's not something you would be casual about and say that because there's odds in this direction or that direction to end the relationship and to weigh these factors very carefully and to understand that life has variables no matter what you're able to test for and to get as much information as you can, but also proceed recognizing that there's only so much we can control and therefore in this situation certainly would imagine that the relationship should continue and they should do the best they can to manage the circumstances.
2: Yeah. I mean, we're so lucky that we get to test for so many things, but there's so many things that we still can't test for. We can't plan for everything. Um, so actually, the next scenario goes along those lines. Um, so Kayla and Avi, that's a starter sale. They've been dating for a few weeks. Um, Kayla decides to tell Avi that her older brother had bipolar depression and that her maternal uncle has schizophrenia. So now we're kind of moving into the, the mental health realm, um, which we're trying to um, make people a little bit more comfortable with. It. So it's a little bit different than um, the conditions that we're testing for on J-Screen, but there definitely is some kind of genetic component, so I thought it would be important to speak about today um, because we're talking about the topic of dating. So some important uh, genetic information. So um, just to take a step back, there are different types of genetic diseases. Um, the first type that I wrote here is a monogenic disease. Um, those are conditions that happen when there's a mutation in one gene. So like the Tay-Sachs gene or the cystic fibrosis gene very easy to test for monogenic diseases because you just look at that gene and see, does this person have mutation or not? Uh, And we're testing at JScreen for monogenic diseases. Um, Another type of condition that we have are environmental conditions, which are caused by non-genetic factors, so a viral infection, um, a birth complication, you know, things like that that have nothing to do with one's gene. And then multifactorial conditions is kind of like a combination of those two. Um, they're caused by a combination of genetic factors, could be one gene, could be an interaction between different genes, and also environmental factors. Um, so a really good example of a multifactorial condition could be, would be diabetes. Um, you might be aware that diabetes, like in families, so you might see a couple of people in a family who have diabetes, probably because they have some kind of genetic predisposition, Some people uh, in the family might develop diabetes, some people might not, because they also have other things that added to their genes um, could cause its onset, so for how they eat and what their lifestyle is. So a multifactorial condition very hard to test for. You can't really do a genetic test because it's not one gene, it's a combination of different factors that cause it. Mental health uh, conditions are multifactorial conditions, just like diabetes. So um, we can't calculate what the risk is. It's not as easy as one in four, like it is for CAH or TAS. Um All we can say is that it runs in families. Um, so my question for our is um, a little bit about, you know, disclosure with, with these kind of conditions and these kind of situations. Um, is the girl obligated to tell the guy about her family history? Um, when do you think would be a, a good time to tell him about it? Um, what should he do? Like how, what kind of decisions should he make based on
0: this information? So this question also is highly, highly complex and based on many different competing factors and there's a lot of subjectivity here as well. But just to try to address the points together. So yes, I think she should tell. Uh, the question of when to tell is a little bit more complicated. I think she should tell not necessarily because it's a make or break kind of issue, but because it's always worthwhile having an open disclosure kind of relationship, would not go so far as to say that a third party has the obligation to tell, but it's always going to be a benefit from being open with each other, and that also prevents the possibility of resentment later, which may not necessarily have been well-founded in the first place, but can tend to fester and to develop, especially when there's a feeling that there was something that was concealed. But a big part of telling and disclosing is the context and the timing of that, which is huge. And here I would certainly recommend that it'd be somewhat later on in the process. And that here, should also add that just coming from where my sympathies are a little bit on this issue. So on the previous point, so we mentioned that we won't want to casually end a relationship, because it's not so easy to get a good relationship, and because there are not so many out there, and it's not something to be frivolous about, or to be casual about, but here it's even more so, because in the previous case so we're saying, okay, maybe this couple aren't for each other, but maybe they'll meet somebody else and even that we said we don't want to be too quick to decide, but here what you'd be essentially saying is that this wonderful Kayla should not marry anybody, which is not really a position we want to take and it's not a position that we should take it's a position that the husband, the potential husband should be aware of what he's getting into, but he should at first be able to have a context of seeing how wonderful she is and seeing her in the whole picture. So when it comes to the general question of disclosure in Shiduchim, so it's crucially important that there be disclosure of certain issues for a lot of reasons, but timing is very significant because it radically changes the whole picture. That one should have an opportunity to be able to interact with the individual as an individual and see their whole personality and see the whole package and recognize that nobody's personality And that everybody has issues that come that combine and that affect what's going to be the contours of their lives. And to be able to see that as a totality And the postgame, for the most part, when talking about certain disclosure aspects, they have a language that should be done at a certain point later on in the relationship, because at an earlier stage, cold over cut in the cow that essentially an individual is told about any kind of a problem, will say, well, why should I go out with anybody who's not perfect? I'm perfect, so should I meet anybody who's not perfect? So I'll move on to the next person who's perfect, I'll wait for them. And they don't realize that they're not perfect. Next person not perfect either. And everyone's got their issues. So Warren being advised of what those issues are is potentially very valuable and could be helpful and perhaps should be considered an advantage. At least here I have some idea what the issues are. Others who haven't tested and who haven't disclosed don't even know what the issues are. And everyone's going to have some issues. So to be able to have that in context is crucially important. As I said before about sympathies, so when it comes to So we know that we try to put ourselves in the shoes of the other person and do what we would want to to happen if it was happening to us. But here, there are really four considerations. There are four parties to think about because each each party here the boy and the girl but also for each one they benefit both from being told and not told so to speak because on the one hand they benefit from having all the information but they also benefit from waiting until the information can be taken in a context because there are so many relationships where people are very happily married and they're so grateful that they didn't find out certain things too soon because if they had been told before they had a chance to really know the person so then they would have said no I'm perfect I don't want to meet anybody who's not perfect and they would never have gotten to meet this individual with all of their pluses minuses and they would have lost that on a tremendous relationship. So the timing and the context is crucially important and hopefully she'll be able to have an opportunity to tell him when he's already had a sense of how wonderful she is and everything else that she brings to the table and he'll recognize, okay, so here are the challenges and this is something to factor in and to understand, okay, how this is a part of a larger picture and there are things I don't know and there are things I don't know about other people and who knows what it's going to be like but I'll be able to factor this in. I would add that, it's probably relevant to the next question also, Again, we're trying to front-load everything to be a little bit more efficient. But I was on a panel many, many years ago with Rabbi Eckstein, who founded Doria Sharm, and he made this tremendous contribution in essentially wiping out Tay-Sachs and starting the testing for that, but he was also very hesitant towards other types of testing, and he had very negative attitudes towards other types of testing, and I think it was actually BRCA, which, I mean, the next one he was talking about, but he was uh, against that for various reasons, which I don't think we necessarily subscribe to, as we'll talk about a little bit more, but one of the points he made, he said, it gives you a false sense of security, because it's only going to address the odds of this particular gene creating a problem, and you'll get the impression that, okay, therefore you're totally clear of all other issues, and you won't know that you have a whatever percentage chance of getting the same disease because of other reasons. So it gives you a false sense of security. So I think maybe we could combine the two and we could be protesting, but also recognize that there's still a false sense of security that comes from not testing positive for things. And that we should recognize that, okay, nobody is secure. There's always variables we're not going to know about. So there's a benefit to knowing about what some of the potential problems are and to be able to prepare for that and to account for that as best as possible. So hopefully he'll be able to proceed with that knowledge and they'll have a wonderful way and he'll be grateful that he was informed of everything that she knew to share. And this is also combined with the fact that, as you said, we really don't know what the odds are and it creates a false picture a little bit because maybe it runs in families but it doesn't mean necessarily any more factual knowledge than we would have otherwise. Uh, The Talmud does have a statement the about when there's certain conditions that run in families but the standard for when you establish that is a little bit vague and you don't really find a clear standard in the postkin to determine that which I think also reflects the fact that we don't really know that uh, we think we may have a certain basis to make a decision and we should recognize even with that knowledge how much isn't there and uh, be able to take it in context and to recognize that this is one of many factors and we're grateful for the ability to know as much as we can while still having the humility to recognize there's so much that we don't know and everybody is complicated and nobody's a guarantee and the more we can know and factor that in the better we are better off we are.
2: Yeah, that's a great plug for genetic counseling also. Okay. Um, that's a very good part of what we talk about. Do To get my bill? Yes. Yeah. Um, when we do our counseling, you No. Know, it's, um, very important for people when they're learning complex genetic information to go through the results with somebody who understands how to interpret them and how to explain them. Um, and that's a big part of our counseling is there are limitations to testing and genetics are not the be-all end-all, especially with cancer, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, there is a lot of unknown and we're doing the best that we can, but um, we can't plan for everything.
0: If I could just add to that point also, so it's actually been documented that many doctors don't understand statistics and it 's a huge problem, so when you say somebody has twice the odds of contracting something and the average person has one percent odds, and now they have two percent odds, so the chances that that 's going to affect their lives are still pretty much just as slim, even though it sounds terrible hundred percent increase in odds of it's happening so it 's very important to try to be able to put that in the context and say yes, okay, there is twice the likelihood here, but the chances that that is going to affect your life anymore is still relatively slim, and there's still so much you don 't know, and unfortunately it actually has been documented that even doctors don't know how to interpret what these numbers mean and to be able to put it in a context where it's not disproportionately scary and confusing is part of your job I guess and that's a very crucial gift to the community as well
2: Thank you okay, do we have time for lunch? Uh, so the last uh, scenario that we're going to discuss isn't really so much about um, the reproductive world, it's about the cancer world, but it is something that I see a lot as a genetic counselor in our community, so I wanted to bring it up anyway. way. Um, so Eva is a 50-year-old woman, a 51-year-old woman, and she's a mother of four. When she was 32 years old, she had breast cancer, and she has been healthy ever since. Um, her paternal aunt and her cousin both had ovarian cancer. Uh, her GYN offered her a test that would check for mutations in 60 different cancer predisposition genes. And she's scared to get the test because it could impact her kids should definitely she test positive. So a little bit of context for the next slide. Um, we have many different cancer genes, we have hundreds of different cancer genes. Um, when we're doing genetic testing, we're not looking to see if you have the gene, but we're looking to see if there's a mutation in the gene, if there's a structural change. Um, the job of our cancer genes are for, to protect our body from cancer. So, if the gene is not working properly, if there's a mutation, then it's not gonna protect our bodies from getting cancer. So one example of a cancer gene that probably most of you have heard of is the BRCA1 gene, there's also the BRCA2 gene. Um, And if somebody has a mutation in either of these two genes, they are genetically predisposed to female breast cancer and male breast cancer, ovarian cancer, um, prostate cancer for men, and pancreatic cancer for males and females. Um, I don't know if you can see the numbers too far away, but you see that there's a pretty significant uh, jump Um, if somebody's Ashkenazi, they have a 1 in 40 chance to carry a mutation in either the BRCA1 or the BRCA2 gene. So that's, that's like TASAP, it's just as common as KSAT. So um, many Ashkenazi men and women do have mutations in these genes, which means that they're, you know, highly predisposed to cancer. Um, these run in families, so it's a little bit different than TAFEX and CH and some of these other conditions. Um, these are called dominant conditions. Um, so if somebody has mutation, they themselves have the increased risk for cancer. And each of their children and their other first-degree relatives, like their parents and their siblings, have a 50% chance to have the mutation as well. Um, so for Eva, if she tests positive, that means each of her four kids have a 50% chance to have it, uh, regardless of if their son or daughter It's a 50%. Um, There are options for carriers. So when we see that people do have mutations, the genetic counselor will speak to them about their options. Depending on which cancer gene we're talking about, it's always gonna be a different conversation. Um, But in many uh, of the genes we talk about, um, we might talk about doing enhanced or more frequent Screenings for these cancers, so like doing uh, extra mammograms or breast MRI or ultrasounds, um, maybe colonoscopies if we're talking about colon cancer genes. Um, in some situations, we do recommend that people do risk-reducing surgeries. So for a BRCA carrier, uh, who's a female, we do recommend that they remove their ovaries to reduce the chances of getting ovarian cancer once they're done having their kids. Um, if they already have a cancer diagnosis, there are certain treatments that might be more appropriate for them if we you know that they have a mutation. And in some families um, who are thinking about starting their families or adding to their families, if they know that either partner has a mutation, they might want to use assisted reproductive technologies like IVF to ensure that they're not passing down the mutation to their children. Um, I also added GINA here, which is the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, which um, is a law that basically stops certain insurances from discriminating against people who have a genetic um, mutation. So there are a lot of exceptions to the rule, but certain insurances um, are not part of the law, but we always tell people that before they get tested, it's a good idea to get their insurances in place, because uh, if they do test positive, it could impact their insurance coverage. So some questions for my family. Uh, should she get tested now? Um, should she tell her kids? Is she obligated to tell her kids? Should her kids get tested? Let's assume they're in their 20s the and Um Even if they don't get tested or they do get tested, are they obligated to tell people that they're dating?
0: how would you, what would you do with your visa? Yeah, so here again, so we did essentially front load a lot of the points, so it won't take so long now, hopefully, but there are certainly many overlapping issues. It would seem here also, as far as we understand, that testing can provide a lot of benefits as far as her own health and the health of her children, and therefore that is important to take advantage of. I will mention in this context that some of the opposition that had been voiced in earlier generations or in earlier years in other cultures does worry about whether the tests will be interpreted correctly as far as what steps will be taken. So it's important to combine those attitudes. So on the one hand to test, but also to be very careful in terms of any extreme steps. Some of the surgeries can certainly be extreme. So the question of whether that is actually indicated, so every individual would want to really consult very seriously with their doctors and in their personal circumstances as far as what steps to take based on whatever information they get, but this is information which potentially can save lives and is important to have, important for the mother to have, and important for the children to have as well. And as far as disclosure, I would say it also connects to the previous point, uh, perhaps even more strongly. Uh, Some have suggested that there's been a, a shift in attitudes about disclosure on this point because it used to be people asked about it more and now they don't ask about it so much. So it's a little bit of an indication in the question of how much people are concerned about this and maybe that's a good thing maybe people are understanding that again it's a combination of a lot of different things and it's not necessarily something that they're even going to factor in to begin with so that theoretically could impact the obligation for disclosure one of the things we find in Hilchus Lashon Hara the way the Chafetz Chaim describes it is that when somebody could ask about something and doesn't so then that also affects the need for disclosure. So here, if this is something which is common enough that people are testing for this, and if the potential spouse isn't asking about it, so then that may influence just how much there is an obligation to uh, disclose or not. But again, as we noted before, so being open and disclosing when possible at the right stage, preferably when there is an opportunity to see everything in context, is probably advisable, and the more knowledge the better overall, as long as it's possible to contextualize it, and again, just to kind of rephrase what we said before, so when one does disclose this, so the potential spouse should understand that, okay, so everyone I might marry has a certain percentage of risk, and in this case I'm aware of it, in other cases I wouldn't be aware of it, and to be able to see that in context and hopefully Hopefully, again, just to proceed with whatever will be able to benefit the safety of everyone, the family, and everyone that comes from that relationship.
2: Yeah. So i, I see that it's better to disclose than not to disclose. Um, just in general for relationships, and um, I've seen some pretty very sad stories people yeah. did it. So. Um, Thank you for Thank you. your help on this. Um, if anybody ever has any questions regarding genetics, um, you're always welcome to reach out to me. Um, the medical ethics society people can give you my email address. Um, if anybody here is interested in getting tested themselves uh, for our cancer gen test or for our reprogen gen test, uh, except for why students. A little separate. Um, if they want to gift it to their kids or their grandkids, um, you're welcome to use the coupon code jscreen 50 on our website, and that will reduce the cost of the test by $50. Um, a genetic counselor will be with you through the whole entire process from the time you register until the time your results are released. Um, and that's it for Thank
0: you.